You know, Swillian's deadly here. Just a little heads up that our best friends at Better Beer, partners of the Swillian, Core Lords Deluxe, are running a pretty massive treasure hunt that could make you over $46,000 richer. So during the month of July, Better Beer are giving you the chance to find two Bitcoins hidden in these specially marked cases of Better Beer Zero Carb cans all around Australia. Coinspot has hidden one inside a case of Zero Carb cans in BWS bottlers and another inside a case of Zero Carb cans at Dan Murphy's. So BWS and Dan Murphy's are the bottlers you want to go to to find these specially marked cartons. Each Bitcoin is valued at 46173 bucks and 4 cents as of June 29. So uh, that's what the Bitcoins are worth. You can't miss the cartons. They've got the little rocket ship, find the Bitcoin on the case, and um, they'll be in stores throughout July. And all you got to do is crack a tinny to see if you've won. The winning cans will give you the instructions on how to deem your prize. Good luck, mate. And um, as we always say here, you know, better be they're big contributors to Ain't That Swell. They keep our engines turning. More content, more programs, and just support the crew who support the potty, mate. It's that simple. Keeps us going. They could make you over $46,000 richer. That is pretty sick. You can get more details at betterbeer.com.au. Otherwise, see you at the BWS and Dan Murphy's. <laughs> mad. That's well presents Corbords. Today's guest is Tom D'Souza, a reformed meth addict and prisoner turned award-winning journalist and photographer. Tom also surfs, and he credits surfing with helping turn his life around and find his way out of addiction. Today, we're going to hear all about what sent him careering into an out-of-control meth habit, what his life behind bars was like, and how he's managed to turn it all around. Tom's work has been published by The Australian, the BBC, the West Australian, the Sydney Morning Herald, Tracks Magazine, and others. He's currently writing his first book, and you can follow his work and travels at storiesfromthescenicroute.com. Hey, how are you, bro? Tommy D'Souza. Yeah, mate. Good, bro. Yeah, sick. What's going on? Oh, man, just cruising, eh? What's uh, what's happening with you? You look like you're perched up in a some kind of uh, typically slummy setup in Sambara, is it? Maybe? I'm just oh. guessing. I, I feel like no, I stayed no, in, in that room. In um in, in Bali at the moment, eh? Oh, you're still um, in Bali? Nice. Yeah, yeah. Set up, oh, set, set up here for a month or two and then I'll, um yeah, probably start. Sort of just bought a motorbike, so I'm going to try and ride across to Timor. Oh, classic. Um, Fuck yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, probably yeah, probably try and ride across most of the archipelago. Eh? Yeah. That's classic, man. I've, uh, mate, I've, I've ridden as far as Sambawa, and, uh, yeah, uh, are you going to do it alone? Well, I lost you there for a sec, movie. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, bro. Yeah, I got you now. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I've only ridden as far as Sambawa, and that was pretty fucking psycho. Are, are you going to do the mission alone, or? Yeah, yeah, just solo, eh? Just um, yeah, bought this old bought this old trail bike, 
And um, yeah, bro, see, see how far I can get, eh? It's been That's four a, months or something. Yeah, that's a smart purchase. The trail bike is the go. The, the old Vario rental scooter, wouldn't recommend it, eh, to be honest. Yeah, pushing, the, pushing the limits of the machine there a bit, eh? <laughs> 100%, man. Oh, that's going to be classic. So uh, how long you been in Indo for? And what's the – what's yeah, you've been getting some waves? Uh, yeah, yeah, been been surfing a bit. Um, I did like I did an internship with the BBC in Jakarta like maybe five or six months ago. Wow. Um, and sort of since then, like I kind of had this, yeah, I kind of had this dream of sort of um, riding across most of the archipelago. Like mm. yeah, in the last year or two, a few things have changed in my life, and it sort of felt like now is the right time to give it a crack. Um, so yeah, I came end of May, like like yes, yeah, like. Sort of thirty first of May, I've been here and just kind of hanging Bali for a month or two, um, get set up, just do the odd little like odd little trip to sort of test things out, work out what I need, and then um, yeah, 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 probably probably yeah, probably another month I'd say. Wow, um, we'll start cruising. Eh? That's fascinating, man. So uh, yeah, I mean we'll get into your story uh, shortly, but yeah, the BBC. Uh, outpost in jakarta doing the internship how'd you find that yeah yeah it was pretty wild i didn't like it's a pretty it's a pretty full-on place jakarta eh? oh. um yeah at first i kind of didn't really like it that much at all it was pretty like the traffic and the pollution is pretty in your face um but yeah i mean i i kind of like after about six weeks I, I was sort of hating it and like looking for an escape and i sort of went oh you know, I'm probably never going to come to this place again unless I've got like a reason like this to be here. So I sort of thought, well, I'm here, may as well just see what it's got to offer. And actually, after that, I kind of, I kind of didn't mind today. I sort of started enjoying it. Hmm. Um, yeah, the nightlife there is pretty wild, um, and yeah, there's, it's just, it's just a pretty different place. You know, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. You know, things you'd sort of never see. Um, yeah, different places and that. So it was, yeah, it was cool. It was, it was a cool experience. You know. Mm. Yeah, I haven't spent a lot of time there, but I've spent a lot of time with people who've spent a lot of time there. And I guess back in the day, it was all about Stadium Nightclub, which was, uh, I don't know, if you, have you heard <laughs> yeah, of Stadium? Yeah. yeah, I heard of Stadium, yeah. yeah, Fuck, yeah. What have you heard about Stadium? <laughs> oh, I was I was there, I think when I was there, it had been shut down already. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah this sort of place like just pretty much doesn't close from Thursday to Tuesday or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it sounded yeah. psycho. Like I heard the reason they shut it down ultimately was because a uh, a cop died of a drug overdose in there, and uh, yeah, yeah, it, it was a place where drugs were sold, you know, so freely. And uh, mm. I, I actually I remember when they shut it down, there was this famous Dutch DJ who DJed all over the world, you know, and he's like, "If you think Berlin's crazy, mate, you got to check Stadium out. Like it's <laughs> fucking next level," which is. <laughs> Yeah, a wild concept because, as you as you know, like Indonesia's so against drugs officially, but mm. not if you're an Indonesian elite. Like then you can do drugs pretty yeah. freely, and um, there's just a whole different set of rules for that mob. But mm. yeah, fuck man, what else? Like Jakarta, like yeah, try to paint the paint the scene for us, man. I like, I again don't know that much about it. Have barely ever left the airport there. I know that um. There, you know, it's the birthplace of Marginal, which is like Indonesia's probably most beloved punk band. And they, they used to fucking run like a a commune for uh underprivileged kids in the sewers and shit. Like the, you know, like so crazy, just the the level of poverty, but then the level of like activism and uh some like hardcore kind of socialist punk 
um, uh, actors and uh, yeah, people in that part of the world. It, it's like there's a lot going on. <laughs> mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was it was like one thing I found pretty interesting there was like there was not really much of middle class. Eh, there was like there was kind of really poor, and then like just like uber rich and and sort of not really much in between, you know. Um, so yeah, I was I was kind of living in South Jakarta. Um, office was not far from there. Um, I did one story about like how the city's sinking. So basically, like all the all the hotels, like all the hotels and business, because there's not a, like a, a lot of places don't have um, like they're not on mains water, you know. So a lot of people just kind of tap into the like drill down and tap into the groundwater. And because so many people are pilfering all the all this water from sort of under the like un, underground, it's kind of created this massive vacuum, and the weight of the city's just sort of slowly sinking down. So it was yeah, it was it was wild sort of going. Like a like soggy Tim Tam place. that you've been sucking milk through it. <laughs> yeah, pretty well, much. That's a good that's way to describe wild, Jakarta Yeah. Jesus. That's yeah. a wild yarn. And yeah, what was going on inside the uh the decorated halls of the BBC, man? Like freak. That's you know, I guess in some ways the most respected English speaking news network in the world but in other ways you know my observations of it seems to be pretty well gutted by bourgeois elites like most other media mm. agencies like mm. fuck they all seem to be like that these days yeah 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 um it, it was good it was like i sort of i mean i I graduated a journalism degree or oh, a year before and i sort of you know i was kind of testing the waters with the whole office thing and trying to work out whether that was for me or not um, and I sort of thought, oh, if I'm if I'm going to do it, I may as well have a red hot go at it. So yeah, went to, went to Jakarta and and um, did that with the BBC. It was it was good. It was it was really challenging. Eh? It's like everything everything was in everything was in Indonesian, like editorial meetings, um, interviews, writing stories, and then having to translate them into Indonesian. So it was good. It was a steep it was a steep learning curve. Um, I enjoyed that. I suppose the office there in Indonesia was probably more like casual and laid back a little bit more Indonesian um, than say like, you know, somewhere in London. I mean, you could wear thongs to work and that sort of thing, which yeah, it's so it's sort of me. It was pretty cool. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. So yeah, you, you, but, you're now fairly fluent in Bahasa then I'd imagine. Um, yeah. Like I, I suppose the difficult thing is within every language, there's kind of different levels, you know, like you got sort of, you got sort of the basic level that you speak on the street and then the, the, the language you speak in the office, it's almost like an entirely different language. So that was that was sort of one thing to wrap my head around, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I suppose like traveling around Indonesia, I think that's probably one of the best best tools you can have. You know, I mean, language. It's also like it's also kind of a window into the soul of a people. You know, I mean, I, I think one thing I find interesting is like within certain languages, there'll be certain phrases or ways of looking at the world that are unique to that kind of people, and there's actually almost no literal translation into a, into another language, you know? So I feel like by understanding a, a language, you get to see how a, a certain people sort of are and the way the way that they look at the world. You know? Mate, that is so true. Uh, without the language, you really only ever get a surface level appreciation of mm. a place and its people. And you miss out on so much, you know, all the, the bits mm. of humour and the observation. And there's also like just so much respect given to you as soon as you can uh, speak mm. their language. It, it's like a sign that you've, really you know taking the time to take an interest in their culture and yeah i feel like they're always a little bit shocked when you can uh speak mm. even basic bahasa let alone have a good handle mm. of it for sure yeah yeah and I, I suppose it adds like another dimension to this to this adventure as well you know i mean uh, yeah 
I mean, surfing is kind of a primary motivation for this, but I suppose it's really it's it's really a cultural adventure with with kind of surfing as a backdrop. You know, it's such a it's such a diverse and, and unique place, Indonesia. Everywhere you go, the people are so so different. I suppose because there's so many islands, they've you know they've kind of evolved distinctly to one another. You know, so, so yeah, it, it, it'll be cool to sort of get a glimpse into that as well. Yeah, that is fascinating about Indonesia. Eighteen thousand islands, and they a lot of them have their own language, huh? Like. You know, Bahasa was like the one that they kind of blanketed on top of the joint to create a bit of cohesion linguistically. But um, mm. yeah, so many different dialects in the zone. And uh, any mm. any good waves, man? You been scoring over there? Uh, yeah, been surfing a bit. Went sort of um, went over to went over to G Land for the first time. Went to deserts for the first time. Um, yeah, pretty phenomenal to see deserts. Like I've never I've never seen waves like that before. Eh? It's just like yeah just completely like sort of melted my mind. I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, you know, it's so perfect. And, and yeah, like, you know, like something, something out of it, something out of a cartoon book or something. It's kind of like, Oh, um, but yeah, the crowd, the crowd was pretty ferocious. It's sort yeah. of my first time out there. So I didn't, I didn't really get the one I wanted, but yeah, it was sick to sort of test it out and I'll, I'll be back there soon for sure. Yeah. So crazy. Just the, that blue water, eh? When it, the the color yeah. of the water and the, the the light offshore and when it all just starts yeah, lighting yeah. up it's it's fully mesmerizing yeah 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 for sure mate uh yeah let's get into your story i mean fucking hell it's a it's a wild journey you've been on and full credit mm. to you for for being in the nick you're in now and and you know surfing and committing to to choosing life and and all that that entails but let's go back to i guess the dark point first and uh, that was uh shooting up meth for the first time man and uh you know mm. in some of your written work you've painted a really good picture of what that was like can you talk us through that um yeah probably sort of when i was about oh i, I sort of had my first shot of ice when i was 15 um like i'd been i'd kind of dabbled with heroin and, and opiates and that sort of thing before it never really appealed to me that much like it made me sick it made I, I like the rush of it straight away but it made me sick it made me itchy and i suppose people go i think like when when it comes to when it comes to heavy drugs i think people choose people prefer different substances for different reasons i think i think people who sort of go down the route of downers and opiates they're almost trying to numb some sort of pain, you know, or as I think with like with stimulants like ice, it's like you're trying to bring a part of your, you know, trying to bring a part of yourself out that that maybe you, um, you, yeah, you can't you can't find or you're not in touch with. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of went looking for it. Um, I found, yeah, I, I found it, and and sort of straight away, it's like it, it's the, it's the most potent thing I've ever felt, you know. Um, yeah, it just you know everything. All my problems just seemed to disappear and, and and melt away, um, and it kind of just like it just felt I was flying, like I was on top of the world, you know. It's, yeah. Mm. And and talk us through that day that it happened. Like how how old were you, and you know who uh who facilitated it for you? Where did it go down? That, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um. Yeah. So I was I was I was fifteen. Um. <laughs> I'd just come back from working away. Uh, I'd been working down in the furniture truck, so I had a bit of cash. Um, and my mate, my mate Jesse, I, I sort of, yeah, I was, I was, I, I kind of asked him. I said, "Oh, do you know where I can get near this?" And and he he introduced me to his mate Maddo. Uh, Maddo was thirty five at the time, 
Um, so he was 20 years older than me. He was disordered with mental illness. Um, yeah, like manic, manic bipolar. Um, and he sort of had like, he, he, can't, he had this shaved head with skulls tattooed over his head. Um, and I mean, like, he was an interesting character matter. He was like, he, he, he didn't necessarily, he, you know, he, did, he wasn't sort of out there taking kids off the street corner and bringing them in and getting them hooked on ice. You know, he was taking, kids would come to him who were sort of already in this world and who had lost their way. And Maddo sort of saw that, you know, these are kids who needed some guidance. If, they, if nobody guided through them through this world, then people would take advantage of them. And so, you know, he, he, he was sort of like, if you've ever read um, Oliver Twist, he's, kind, he's a little bit like Fagan out of, out of, out of um, yeah, from, from Oliver Twist, you know. He, he's kind of taking people under his wing and showing them the ropes. And, you know, obviously it was for his own benefit as well. Um, but, yeah, he, he sort of, yeah, we were in his block of East Perth flats, so pretty sure they were housing commission flats. Um, and, yeah, he, he sort of, he, he did me up with like a, a, a packet of ice or something and, and yeah, I mean, straight, yeah, straight away, like that, that feeling, the rush, you know, I spent, I spent the next probably three or four years chasing that feeling. Mm. And I mean, out of all the, the drug addicts that you would have been hanging out with at this point, you know, what led them to drug addiction a lot of the time? Was there any recurring themes in terms of, of what led people to that point? Yeah, I think, you, I think usually it's like, I think usually it's family, you know, there's some sort of breakdown in the, in the family structure. And I think people go people go searching for that, you know. I think I think it's not so much the drugs that people get addicted to, but the things that are missing from their life. And, and sort of within that world, there was kind of almost this this sense of family, you know. It was quite, it was sort of a false sense because it was all sort of linked by drugs, and um, it, it wasn't real, you know. The drugs were, were, were the only thing that were keeping a lot of us together. There, there's not many people. It probably only one or two from that world who I still have contact with, you know. Um, so yeah, I think for a lot of people, it was it was something that had been missing from their childhood, some some kind of sense of family or some sort of sense of belonging or love, and you know it went it went looking for that down this sort of cul-de-sac of of of, of drugs and and um, you know violence and, and crime and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because you know I've kind of distilled good mental health down to being really about having a lot of energy, like mm. high energy and there's mm. good and bad energy. But, uh, you know, generally like if you've got a lot of energy to me, it seems that you're generally feeling pretty good. And that's what meth gives you. It gives you mm. a ton of energy. Um, mm. So you might've been feeling low energy before that. You might be feeling low energy all the time and, and low mm. energy can be the result of poor sleeps, constant stress, trauma, and there's just no respite from the the fucking endless funk of low energy, and then uh, mm. ice, you know, uh, enables you to feel a rush of energy, and I guess uh, with that energy comes confidence and all manner of kind of positive uh, emotions or thoughts or ideas, mm. but they're not really based in reality um, mm. because of the drug. But yeah, I mean. Moving forward, I guess we're kind of jumping to the end of the story, but uh, at least for me these days, I mean, I never went down the route of drugs, but uh, there's a lot of methods out there available that can create similar levels of energy that are much more based in reality. And, um, mm. you know, at the end of the day, will 
ultimately put you to sleep when you're meant to go to bed as opposed to keep you up for days on end. Uh, you know, your breath works, Wim Hof meditation, exercise, surfing, all these kinds of things. Uh, is that a, a fairly accurate summation of meth and, and what leads people to taking that drug? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think like, you know, that 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 energy that it gives you, I mean, yeah, it, it, it certainly like it made a lot of those problems disappear and, and go away and sort of made me feel like I was on top of the world and none of that mattered and I could go and do anything. But it's it's completely false as well, you know, because it's an entirely chemical sensation, you know. Um, and I, I suppose, I mean, I, I think what it really comes down to is everyone's kind of looking for joy and and everyone's looking for meaning in life, you know. I sort of found myself in these in these circumstances where I had that the that idea of how to find that and what that is I, I had it confused you know I, I kind of went looking for the easy option I sort of went looking for a shortcut and I think I think there are really no shortcuts in life you know it's only through it's only through the work and through yeah through through the hard work that you can you know you can you can achieve and, and accomplish these things mate that's so true like you know what you said uh about ice just being a, a chemical rush even like Wim Hof and exercise and, and all these things are also just a chemical rush. They're, they're just mm. a slightly mm. different set of chemicals. And as you mentioned, uh, they're chemicals that you have to earn. And that's like the karma or the the cosmic joke of life is that mm. there is no shortcuts. Uh, nothing's given for free. And the only things that make us happy are a little bit difficult. If there's mm. no difficulty mm. attached to it, there's no happiness either. And so that's just the fucking, that's just the price of admission on planet Earth. Uh, and the quicker you wrap your head around that, the better you're going to be and everyone around you mm. for that matter. Mm. It's true. And it's it's like, a, it's, it's a, uh, you know, meditation and yoga and, and those sorts of things. They're, they're pure as well. You know, they're, they're, they're completely pure. It's like my, my yoga is one thing that's really helped me. And my, my brother, well, he went to prison not long ago, like a few years ago. And while he was in there, he, he discovered yoga and he said he, he said about it he's like oh this is incredible you know it's like it's like it's like getting stoned without smoking any cones you know <laughs> Beautiful. yeah it really is so calming and uh yeah so much physical strength and flexibility and you know it's, it's mm. endless the the benefits that come from stuff like that Mm, mm, for sure and it's pure too you know so things like that they're pure no no one can take them away from you you know they're, they're not so they're not as ephemeral as drugs where it's just kind of a flash and then it's gone and you, you, you know you're mm. chasing you're chasing that feeling all the time yeah mm, mm. yeah and i found uh you know approaching all these methods like yoga and uh, breathwork meditation so like surfing's a hard one because it's it's so self-absorbed like but generally mm. all the other ones when you do it with a group it, it a makes it easier the actual practice itself um mm. and then you get to also share the benefits of that exercise with each other and mm. uh yeah it's just kind of like a double bonus uh whereas doing it on your on your own it, it's hard to motivate yourself sometimes mm. and yeah i find like doing that collective work is super powerful um and interesting like so we're kind of getting a bit ahead of ourselves but for you sport was a, a massive massive part of rehabilitating yourself uh and, and sport 
is something that is done in in collectives. It's done at gyms. It's done in football clubs. It's and you, and you did all this stuff. You know, you did you you were in, into boxing, uh, into football and into surfing. And talk us through, uh, yeah, what what kind of a, a role sport played for you in, in lifting you out of the doldrums? Yeah, I think like I think sort of coming off the ice, like there's there was a need to kind of replace that rush with something else, you know, like it leaves a massive hole in you. And there was a real need like to fill that void with something else. And for me in the beginning, that was sport, I suppose, because a lot of sport is, uh, I mean, it's so intertwined with health, you know? Um, so, I mean, it like it, you know, feeling healthy and feeling good about myself, it, it motivated me not to kind of go back down that path. It's like, Oh, I feel, I feel good. I don't, I don't want to destroy that, you know? And it, and it also, it also gave me, like something of an endorphin rush, you know, like, yeah, it going surfing, going, going to the gym. Like there is a real chemical rush that, that comes after that. And it's like, that was that, that there was a need to use that to, to replace ice. I mean, over time it's come to be more about balance as well. And like finding a balance in life. I think like in the beginning, it was kind of all just swayed to the one side. It was, I was just putting everything into that. And it was just, it was pretty much just a distraction. You know, I was using those things to kind of take myself away from life and, and to feel good about myself. But I think, you know, it's, it's important to kind of, to cultivate yourself, you know, um, and to, and yeah. And, and, and to find balance and, and to understand, not just to try and distract yourself from these things, but to try and understand why, you know, why, why am I, why am I feeling this way? Where, where do these things come from? What, what, what can I like, how can I how can I respond differently to those things, you know? And and yeah, I mean sport sport helped a lot, but it wasn't the it wasn't uh it's not the entire answer, you know. I think the the people sometimes ask this, oh, what what's the answer? You know, I, I wish it was that simple. It's so multifaceted. There's there's so many different things going on. It's like it is, yeah, it's 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 and it it takes a long time, you know. Um, even now still, like I wonder if I still like I still think yeah, got you back. Yeah, bro. Yeah, lost yeah, cool. There. Yeah, you were just saying. Uh, even now, I still. Uh, and, and then it kind of cut out. You're talking about yeah, just, just trying to get to the root cause of things, I guess. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose like drugs is like, especially a drug like ice. It's that potent and that that sinister. I think I think once you inject something, you kind of cross. You, you're actually crossing like a physical threshold that you can never really truly come back from i think you know um and like I, I i wonder sometimes if that will stay with me forever it's still like it's still something i think about from time to time um and it's like it just comes out of nowhere too that's the frightening thing it's like where, where did this come from why why like why am i feeling like that and i suppose that's 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 i think really the key to all this is the key to a lot of things in life is is that self-awareness you know i don't think we we can change we can't change the things that have happened in our life, the circumstances, the way, you know, the way in, in which we might have been like programmed or designed a certain way. But I think by being self-aware, you can come to understand these things and 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 change the way in which we respond to them. You know, I think I think that's 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 all that anyone can do. Mm. Absolutely, man. Yeah. And when those impulses or emotions arise you know you can't control them all you can do is is sit with them and observe them and uh hopefully like you said through self-awareness and a level of detachment 
just watch mm. them, observe them, become the witness. That's what they all say. The only way to get to that point as far as I know is through meditation. Uh, and we've seen the mm. likes of Tom Carroll, you mm. know, tread a very similar path to yourself and use that tool to pull him out of uh, the abyss and, as a result, like yourself, is you know he's well, he's a, a bit further down the track, but uh, you know he's a fucking absolute patron saint of like mm. transcendence and and the correct way to conduct yourself in life. I feel mm. like um, mm. so yeah, the, the tools are there, but it's a it's a it's a I can only imagine a painstaking journey at times and. Um, it's also must be quite a, a bit of pill to swallow just for a lot of people knowing that your only route out of this situation is doing this kind of hard, fairly solitary work that mm. is just so far from your identity. You know, you, you build mm. an identity over years of being a hoodlum or a drug addict or in prison and then someone goes like, mm, well, you, your best chance of rehabilitating is to do yoga and meditation. Like try telling mm. that to people in JLA, like they'll fucking <laughs> yeah. laugh at you, man. Mm. Yeah, but yeah. it's, it's, it, it is what it is. And that it is mm. all there is. Mm. Yeah, it's true. It's like, and I, I think like the hardest part about giving up drugs is not so much like getting sober is kind of the easy part. It's, like the hardest part is having to rebuild your whole entire life again from scratch. You know, you got to get rid of all your friends. You, you, you sort of have to, you have to rid yourself of your own identity and your own idea of, of, of who you were, you know, you, you have to try and change that. Um, and that, that's the hard part. That's like, that's something that, that, that takes years, you know, that, that doesn't come easy for me. It's been, it's been a long struggle. Um, but I suppose now I kind of live a different kind of life. And I suppose I've I've designed that life and I've built that life around those things that have been really important to me and have, and have helped stayed me on that journey. You know, like, um, free. Yeah, I mean, freedom. Like, it, it's uh, it's something. Uh, I suppose going to juvenile detention and going to prison. It's it's something that you, um, like it's it's kind of hard to learn to reappreciate that sense of freedom again. Um. I mean, yeah, I think I think those sorts of institutions, they institutionalise you in a way that makes you hard. It doesn't really set anybody up to help them succeed, you know. Um, it kind of it kind of traps you within that system, and, and coming out of that system, it's sort of it's kind of difficult to learn to reappreciate that freedom again, you know. Because I mean, for a lot of people, like if you've got difficult stuff going on outside, I think for a lot of people pretty easy, you know. You you go in there. You sort of you get three meals a day. You get a shower. You don't you don't have to make any difficult decisions. Like a, a lot of people, you just kind of put your head down and, and just do the time, you know. And then it's it's like coming at it like coming out. You're on your own, you know. You, you and you, often you have to sort of deal with a lot of the difficult things that led to you going in there in, in the first place. And, and you come out and you're entirely alone on that journey. A lot of people can't cope with that, you know. They go, oh, well, jail's just an easy. I'll just you know. I'll just go back to like people, people in there used to joke and say, oh, you know, this kid, he's just coming here for a feed and a shower, you know? So, yeah. It's a crazy concept for ordinary folk to wrap their head around that jail's like a holiday from life for a lot of people. And mm. therefore there is no disincentive to play up on the outside. In fact, there's an incentive mm. to play up on the outside. Mm. And that's a fucking broken system because when people play mm. up on the outside, We've got to deal with it. So, 
you know, mm-hmm. all the petty thievery and, and petty thuggery and uh, that, that kind of shit that is just ultimately a fucking scourge on society, that is being incentivized and created by the prison system, mm-hmm. um, creating disastrous outcomes for ordinary folk. And then, yeah, like on top of that, you know, I've had many friends and and, and some family go to jail and uh, what I've observed is like a lot of the people that end up in jail, man, they were just from the moment they were born, they've been victims of levels of mm. child abuse, sexual abuse. Uh, they've just been abused and mm. they grow up abused and they grow up in this, this cycle of fucked up plutonium grade trauma. And mm. then the system re-traumatizes them like there's no help from the system the system just fucking tosses them in jail in the too hard basket where they just mm. you know only get upskilled in the uh skill of crime so they come back out yeah. not reformed and then cause you know dramas plunge other people into cycles of trauma by violently abusing or doing whatever else mm. to them so, you know, I can't really blame a lot of people in jail because they're just mm. they're victims of circumstance and that's what they'll be their entire life until, you know, generally they're fucking dead with a needle in their arm or swinging from a noose or fucking doing life. Like that's generally the uh, trajectory of these people's lives and, and that's fucking no life, man. And the fact that the state mm. uh, is complicit in these people's lot in life, I think is a fucking disgrace, man. I think it's embarrassing. Like with all the resources and shit, we've got at our disposal and all the knowledge and science and these, you know, therapeutic medicines that are coming online legally as of like last week in this country, uh, MDMA and psilocybin and stuff like this, which is now proven uh, in multiple, multiple uh, studies to, to help in, you know, curing trauma. To, to not be taking this shit into prisons and to to not be just giving these people a hand in, in bettering their lot mm. in life. I find it embarrassing, man. I think it's just mm, fucking it's disgraceful. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. It's 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 definitely another system that's designed to help help people succeed, you know. And I think I think one of the hardest things uh, and like I've, I've talked with my brother about this. I, I was lucky enough never to have gone to adult like an adult prison i spent most of my teenage years in and out of juvenile detention from sort of it went in there the first time at 13 it probably went back 10 11 12 times up to about 17 um but i mean one of the most difficult things i think to undo is is like that violent sort of outlook that it that prison inculcates in you like it's you have to sort of adopt that to survive you know it's like what one of the first days i was in there one this kid like so this kid explained it to me and said, like, you know, it's like there might be two of you in the in the queue and there's one strawberry jam left and the one behind you says, nah, fuck you, that's my strawberry jam. And it's like you have to you have to stand up and fight. And it's not even about the strawberry jam. It's like if that that person's challenging you, if you back down and, and show yourself as 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 weak, everybody else in there is gonna walk all over you. They'll take everything off you, they'll push it, they'll push in front of you in the queue in the queue for phone calls. They'll steal your canteen because they saw that you didn't stand up for yourself, you know. And it's like it's this kind of false masculine ideal of what of what strength is. I think you know it's kind of this this need to be violent and put up this front and like 
I mean, really, I think a true strength and a true power, it doesn't need to be asserted in that sort of way. You know, it just, it radiates outward. It comes, it comes from within. It's like a, it's a quiet strength. It's a, it's a quiet sort of power and, and, it, and it brings other people up around you and lifts other, lifts other people up as well. And I think not just in prison. I mean, yeah, but I think a lot of young men have got that confused as well. And, and, and prison sort of definitely confuses that a lot more because it's that, that sort of outlook in there, it's, it's necessary for survival. You, you, you have to, you don't, you, like, yeah. If, if you don't, it's going to make you, if you don't sort of put up that violent front, it's going to make your life even harder, you know. Mm, mm, yeah, that's such a, a common tale from prison. Um, and, oh, man, you're so right. That that faux masculinity, that, 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 that violence is a sign of strength kind of thing is, is such mm. horseshit. Um, and- but it's it's a, it's a difficult thing to undo as well, you know. I mean, that, and that's one thing I've really that's one thing I've really struggled with. Like, you know, that that kind of mentality it serves you well in there, but then you, you get outside and it's like it's difficult. It's difficult to relate. Like, I, I found it really difficult to relate to people for for a long time, and and also to understand how I feel and and to. Like you know, that like violence and anger almost becomes like a default emotion, and and it's like I think, you know, I think by not allowing yourself to feel what things really are, by pushing them down and, and swallowing them, they they harden and turn into something else, you know. And it's it's been difficult to come to understand that, and also to allow feelings to be what they need to be, and and to express them in the way in which they need to, in in the most natural way, and in, in in what it is for those things to come out, you know. Yes. Well put, man. And violence and anger is a hard one to get a handle on, uh, especially, you know, it's ironic. I, I guess that's been an issue for both of us and both of us have ended up working in an industry that's dominated by upper class people. And, what, and there's a different social matrix that operates amongst the the elites and um, the, the people that dominate the, the media and, and arts profession. And it's a social matrix in which violence has never been a reality in these people's lives so in place of uh real violence and aggression you end up with a a, 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 a level of passive aggression and snide comments and um mm-hmm. you know and, and, and kind of disrespectful or distrustful behavior that in my world would get you flogged but <laughs> you can't you can't do that in in that world and mm-hmm. um yeah, that's a really hard one to to manage. I I struggled with that because, yeah, I mean, I even like in the the working class, like generally, there's a way of conducting yourself because people know that you know you shouldn't uh, tick a fucking bricklayer off, you know, or a plumber has been sweating his fucking ring out for four hours. Like, yeah, like so. That social matrix, uh, there's actually a great writer, Darren McGarvey. You should read some of his work. Darren McGarvey wrote uh, Poverty Safari. He's a, a Scottish Housing Commission guy and um, mm. talks a lot about this. He's a f- kind of a, he's a rapper as well, but yeah, he talks a lot about the different social matrix that exists between the, the lower class and upper class. And I feel like uh, the threat of physical retribution for poor behavior mm. is, is a, a real missing link as you go further up the class chain and yeah it just means that uh you do have to find a way to process uh, anger and that emotion passive aggression such a weird one to me because mm. like it, it, it's just like the coward's aggression like it's the same thing but it's hid behind a smile 
Mm. Um, and I don't see, I don't see it as any better or worse than, than real aggression. Like it's the same thing. It's just mm. the coward's way of doing it. So yeah, I feel for you, man. Like it, what has been? It's, um, it's 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 funny though. Like a lot of you know a lot of criminal people I, I hung out with are actually probably some of the most honest people I've met. You know because mm. the, the rules of engagement are pretty implicit. You know it's like if you rip someone off and, and do the wrong thing, it's like whoa, there's you know there's a chance you're going to get seriously injured or killed. You know so it's mm. like yeah, mm. absolutely, man. I, I couldn't agree more. I think. Um, the honesty and authenticity goes up the further down the class rung you go. There's there's no doubt mm. about that. There's no actors or, or phonies when you're down in the the uh, working class or working poor. Everything is as it is, and uh, people you know call a spade a spade down there, and uh, mm. that that completely disappears as you move up the class mm. rung. It's so discombobulating. Um, I I, I kind of got lost for years. I feel like. Uh, hanging out with the media elites when I was trying to make a fist of it as a you know legitimate journalist for the big newspapers and all that. And I entered this and I was in my mid to early 20s. I just got completely lost in this world where um, I didn't understand how to behave and I spoke a bit different and I had slightly different views and ways of doing things. And, and that made me a pariah and, um, you know, kind of could open me up to derision and I didn't know how to deal with that either. And uh, yeah, it, it, mate, I, I couldn't agree more. I, f- I feel so much at peace and at mm-hmm. ease with people who, yeah, maybe they are fucking surly or in a bad mood or have some violent tendencies. Um, but y- you know what you're getting kind of deal. And I, I, it doesn't matter if they're not that nice all the time and they have this fucking performative front up that makes them seem like this nice person. I, I don't care for that. I, I just care for like, um, I'm I'm down with hard boiled fucking semi cuntish people. Like, you, you, there's just some goalposts there. You got to kind of <laughs> work around. Hmm. But I I think I think like a a lot of the kindest, most compassionate, most empathetic people I've met have all been ones who have struggled and gone without. You know, because because they understand they understand what's truly important. And at the end of the day, when you got nothing left, all you got is what's in here. You know, and that's that's what really counts. You know, as I think. I think people with like people with money that have built their lives around money and, and material possessions, they, they've got it confused, you know. It's it's yeah. What's what's you know, I think having nothing comes to show you what's really important and what really matters. Totally, man. Couldn't agree more. I've experienced a, a lot more forgiveness in those lower realms because uh yeah, people are fucking up a lot. You know, you have to kind of be forgiving and you understand that people aren't coming from perfect backgrounds. This is like, it seems like almost no one I knew came from a good home. So, you you know, people have little spats and blow ups and flare ups and you have to forgive that because um, you know what's going on in their world. And then when you, you go up, you know, people aren't necessarily from more loving homes in, in the, the wealthier rungs of society. But there is a, a social convention in, in how to behave and how not to behave. And um, if you flout that convention, yeah, you'll be written off. And there's not a lot of forgiveness there. You know, people can can junk you, you know, put you in the two-hard basket very easily in, in that world. Um, whereas, yeah, in the lower class, you don't get – people don't junk you almost. Like it didn't – like people can do some pretty awful shit and and, and – still there'll be a, some people who will forgive you and there'll, there'll be always people there who know what you've gone through trying to kind of 
help and be around and, and, and just hoping that you're going to eventually see the light. Yeah. But these are massive generalizations. Um, man, talk to us about, yeah, just some of your memories from being incarcerated, like the, the stuff that's kind of stuck with you uh, for better and, and for worse. Um, probably like the first time I went in, I was, I was 13 years old. Um, I mean, I came, like I came from a good home and a good family. I mean, I, I, th- I think like you were saying, you know, our family had a lot of, a lot of, uh, material wealth and possessions and these sorts of things. Like I spent the first eight years of my life in London. I, I had like a really good life there. I had a private, like private school education. Dad, dad was working a good job. Um, and then we kind of, we moved to Australia and the family sort of started to fall apart a bit. And I think like, even though we had all these things and, and from the outside looking in, like our life was, was perfect, you know, it was a life of middle-class affluence. I think one of the things that was missing was this ability for us all to communicate on an emotional level and to talk about the things that were going on inside of us and, and how we, you know, how we, how we responded to those things. And so like that, because mum and dad, I mean, yeah, mum and dad didn't have those skills. Maybe their parents had never had those skills as well. And that's something I've I've come to understand over the years. I I don't blame them for that. Um, but yeah, I I grew up never having had those skills as well. So when the family started sort of started to fall apart, I, I didn't really know how to respond to these things that were going on around of me and these things that were going on inside of me as well. Um, so I sort I sort of started playing up and and you know like smoking weed and, and and getting into graffiti and this sort of thing. And I think everybody kind of looked at the problem and just sort of blamed drugs. I think it's a general thing in society to kind of just point to, point to them. I mean, it's it's the easy option, isn't it? You know, I mean, to to I think for them to look deep and 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 go, well, why is this why is this really happening? That would have meant for 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 mum and dad to have a good hard look at themselves as well. And and I think you know, that's emblematic of the way that society responds to these things. I think to resolve these things, it means that we have to have a good a good hard look at ourselves and the systems that we've set up and say, well, maybe these things aren't working, you know, maybe there's a, a different, a better way of doing these things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was like, that was kind of the story that I was being told uh, that, that drugs were the problem. And I, I suppose it, it definitely became that way. Mm. Um, I remember going into juvenile detention for the first time and like, it was, it was, it was the moment my childhood ended, you know, it was like, you know, I think I got caught with like, I was, I was just, I was just a little kid, you know, I was 13 years old. I didn't really have access to any drugs. I was kind of just going, going coals with my mate after school and knocking off these like caffeine pills and snorting them in the back alley. And I like, I'd stashed a whole lot of them in my room and, um, you know, mum found all this white powder in my room. And I was, she asked me what it was, and I was, I was angry with my parents. I didn't know how to, how to, to tell them that I was angry and that I was hurt and that I was upset. So I just said nothing. I, I just, I tried to punish my parents to show them how I felt, and they, they called the police. Um, the police came, and there was like because I'd mixed it up with like, I'd heard you could make speed from cold and flu pills, so I put like crushed mm. up a couple of cold and flu pills and put them in there, and um, yeah, they, they. The police did like a reactive test to see what this stuff was, and it because because there were cold and flu pills, it came back positive for methamphetamine. So they charged me. They charged me with dealing ice. Wow. Um, yeah, and yeah, and and sort of at, and they kind of convinced my parents that 
the only solution was to send me to juvenile detention for a night. And went that oh this will this will scare him, this will shock him into change. But it sent it sent me the complete other way. You know, it made me it made me even angrier. It told me my family rejected me. It told me society rejected me, and just instilled this hatred of authority in me. You know, and that that was that was the moment that that, that my childhood ended. It was like my freedom, my childhood, my family. It, it was all it was all gone. It, it all taken away in that second. It was pretty hard to come back from that as well. Wow, that's a remarkable story, man. That like mm. literally bad parenting and bad policing ultimately mm. it was the catalyst for what became a, a a decade or so of drug addiction and incarceration. Like to think that mm. everything could have been solved at that point with a, an honest uh, fucking fishing or camping trip and a couple of heart to heart combos, yeah. like you know, mm. like. That's mm, a fucking true. mind blower, man. True, but uh, you know, I think mom, I think my mum and dad. I think like any parents, they like they were, they. I think they were good people doing the best they could with the skills that they had, and maybe that you know maybe they didn't have all the skills that they needed as well because maybe that like you know they kind of both came from pretty messed up families growing up, and maybe they yeah you know maybe their parents didn't have those skills, and I, I wonder sometimes it's like how, how far back does that go? You know, how, how many generations does that go? And I think, like, having gone through this struggle and, and through this journey, it's actually been a bit of a blessing because it's it's helped me to come to realise that, like, it, it takes somebody in the family to realise that and go, oh, hang on, this is this is pretty messed up. I, I don't want to repeat this. And, and to kind of, it's helped me to learn that level of self-awareness that, that will avoid me replicating the same things in my life if you know when i decide to have children and that, that sort of thing hmm. mate that's yeah intergenerational trauma it's crazy like the older you get and you kind of look at your own life and you're like fuck like how did i end up here in this situation and then you look at your mom and dad's life and then you look at their parents life and you're like wow this is actually i'm part of a cycle here hmm. and I've woken up to it, you know, whereas mm. uh, some of these, your forebears, they didn't wake up to it. It's not their fault. There wasn't the awareness and the education at that time. Uh, and then it often takes someone to, to really dip deep into the well of dysfunction um, and survive it to then be like, oh, wow, like uh, the buck's going to stop with me. I'm not going to let my kids experience this. And then it's up to you. You you take on the, the burden of curing that trauma, which is no small load, um, in order to prevent your children from having it. And that's kind of the realization that you've had and it's where you're at in life and full credit to you, mm -hmm. man. Like, um, you know, that they say if you, you can cure trauma, you you cure it for seven generations. So, uh, I mean, that kind of suggests also how challenging it is to do, but, uh, yeah, they, I, I don't even look at people anymore as, as good or bad people, you know, like parents are just people that had children and, um, people are just the product of their circumstances and environment pretty much. I mean, what is it? You get 50% what is it? 50% uh, genes, 50% the environment. And that's mm. what makes you up as a human being. And uh, so essentially your parents are responsible for a hundred percent of who you are, <laughs> like, you know, your genes <laughs> and they curate the environment too. Uh, and yeah, I, I it, it, 
takes you to a certain point to be able to forgive your parents. I think that's even like a uh, a passage mm. in life. For the what do they call it? The forgiving your caregiver kind of. It's like a a rite of passage almost in everyone's life. Um, mm. And yeah, like you know, you, your parents made a decision that was the wrong one, and that, that they then have to live with that. But that's that's the call they made, and you've managed to survive. And uh, yeah, it, all things happen for a reason, in a sense. Like you're now in a position to to break the cycle. Whereas if none of this happened, then you'd just be probably aching along, unhappy, stuck in the mm-hmm. same sleepwalking cycle of bullshit that you're about to feed onto your own children. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I look back at this and I, I think this really has been a blessing, you know, and I, I think it's it's probably a good thing that it happened so it happened for me so young as well. Like I was I was really young, but I suppose like being so young, it, it gave me the opportunity also to be able to change my life before I was sort of before I was kind of tainted in a way. You know, I think once you go to once once you go to adult prison, it's sort of a bit of a black mark against your name, and it just becomes harder and harder to come back from. So I think I think I was lucky that I made these, I made a lot of these realizations at a young age, and also that I made you know that I came to realize these things when I didn't have too much to lose. You know, like yeah, I, I didn't have a I you know I didn't have a family that these that this would that this would impact on as well. Like I, I, yeah. I wasn't sort of in my middle age with a mortgage and and kids and and wife and that sort of thing, you know. So it's yeah. I mean, it was sort of a blessing in disguise that it happened so young, really. Mm, and let's talk about some of these turning points. I mean, we start with the the worst first, which was uh, yeah, you attempted to take your own life. Well, what was the, mm. the circumstances that led up to that? Um. Yeah, there's there probably three things that happened in pretty quick, like within maybe 18 months. The first was like, I think everyone who uses drugs. Um, oh, sorry, I thought I lost you, Jed. Um, yeah, I think I think everyone everyone who uses drugs, there comes a point where you're no longer doing it because it's fun. You just you're doing it because it's like it's compulsion and it's habit, and that you kind of don't know anything else. You know, I think that point for me. Like that realization came when uh, after a psychotic episode, I'd been up for about 10, 11, 12 days and sort of, yeah, I, I just, I can't, I like, I went out on the street chasing someone with a meat cleaver who wasn't even there. Um, and kind of one of my only memories of it is just being like cornered in this shopping center car park with like two big, two big German Shepherd police dogs, like stretching the handle as leashes and a red dot on my chest. Um. Yeah, and so that that was that was kind of one of those first moments. I think the second was, um, I was sort of trying to I was trying to change, and it was just like, you know, like that process is is kind of, uh, it's defined by failure as well. You know, it's like and, and yeah, you know, there was a time where I, I'd sort of relapsed and it was back on the ice, and it, like it'd been awake for five or six days or something and it just all felt too hard you know I was just I, I, I gave up on life like I um yeah and I, I tried to hang myself like from this beam in my mum's garage um 
like there were times before when I'd self-harmed. Most of the time they weren't serious. It was more just like a cry for help. It was just saying, look, look I'm really hurting. I'm really struggling. I need some help. But this time, this time I was serious. I I, I wanted to die. I, I I gave up, you know. Um, and so I was I was hanging from this beam, and the beam, like the two brackets on the beam, just snapped out of the wall. And I sort of yeah, I'd I'd sort of started blacking out, and I found myself on the floor with this like kind of you know this beam this beam sort of on my lap and tied to yeah. Um, so yeah, I suppose that day was kind of someone saying no, no, not not yet, you know, it's, yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, but the third, the third, and probably the biggest turning point for me, um, like I'd sort of, I'd sort of started to change my life a little bit before, before this happened. Like I'd, I'd, I'd gone to Europe and spent, like discovered the joys of travel, um, and you, you know, found other ways in like, yeah, spent some time with my uncle in, in Switzerland in, in the mountains snowboarding and, and saw that there was another way to live out there and there were other ways to find joy and 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 meaning in life um and i'd sort of come back and was kind of like it had been a little bit of a circuit breaker for me but i was still sort of like yeah i mean i was still kind of i mean my friends are my friends you know i was still sort of hanging out with them and one time i get this i get this phone call from sort of two of my best mates and they'd said that something something really serious had happened they wouldn't say what it was over the phone but they you know they were both like brothers to me i would have done anything to to help them because it, i felt they'd done you know they'd done the same for me at times and i told them to come around and get me it was sort of midnight when they called um i waited up until 4 and yeah like tried to call them back both of their phones were off you know oh, that's a bit weird and like their phones were off for the next two weeks. I, I sort of was wondering what was going on until I saw both of their like Facebook profile pictures on the news with homicide detectives looking for them both. You know, they they'd both they'd both killed someone. Um, and I remember not long after that, like I hadn't been at school much, sort of through year nine, ten, eleven, and then I remember this is probably at the beginning of year twelve. You know, and I, I remember sort of being at school and we were talking about going to see careers counselors and this sort of thing. And I just kind of had this moment where it was like, it was a realization that I arrived at this fork in the road, you know, it's like that you can go down, like you can go down this road, you can keep going down this road. This is what, this is what waits for you down there. You know, it's like, yeah, it's either, it's either prison or the cemetery or it's like, mm. you know, here's an opportunity to like do something with your life and, and make something of it. And it was like, I remember not long after I got like I got my license and sort of started to reconnect with surfing, um, and I remember sort of going on the first like first surf surfing and camping trip with a mate, like driving down to Margaret River, and it sort of drove past this turn off into bushland where like just a couple of weeks earlier, both of my best mates had buried the uh, buried the body of someone that they'd killed, you know, and wow. yeah, and I, I just kept driving down to the beach. Wow, such a trippy sliding doors moment, man. Mm. What were the what were the circumstances of the murder in the end? Oh, it was pretty brutal. It sort of it happened kind of over like it happened sort of over nothing. Um, they were all off their head on ice, and someone someone came around to sell them some ice. They were planning on ripping him off, and um, my mate Sam, his. he he he, the guy who came the the, the dealer who came around to, to sell him some gear. He Sam was Sam was really close with his partner who was pregnant with this guy's kid, and this guy had come around and was saying, "Oh, you know, I, I don't, 
like he was saying he didn't want the kid and he was going to bash his missus and kill the kid and like you know both of my mates had sort of been up for a couple of days and in their in their twisted sort of state of mind they thought oh you know we have to kill him to stop this from happening um so yeah it was a pretty like it was a pretty violent and brutal murder um he just smashed him to death pretty much Um, yeah it's insane yeah Yeah, i mean there's the literal definition of insanity like just the three people in various stages of drug psychosis like talking horse shit and leads to the murder of one of them it's insane Mm. man and there's also some i understand some people that you know were pretty pivotal in in helping you see the light and um uh, one of them was a this uh, epic boxing coach you had from uh from africa man Tell us about this guy. This guy sounds like a fucking icon. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a lord, Jerry. He's um, I, I first met him when I was in juvenile detention. Um, he's like I don't know. He he was he, he was an art and music teacher there, and like everyone kind of wanted to be in Jerry's class. You know, he was he was someone that like a lot of kids really looked up to and, and respected. Um, I think because like with Jerry, he. He understood this struggle because he'd lived it and breathed it himself, you know. And, and I think one of the things that a lot of kids could take from him was that, like, he wasn't just someone, like, reading these things from a textbook. He, he understood, you know. Um, and so, yeah, Jerry had, like, he'd, he grew up in Mozambique during the Civil War. Um, he, he, would tell, he would tell us these stories, you know. It's, it's, we'd sit, if, if there'd been no violence in the class, he'd, He'd, he'd read us all a story and, like, the kids in his class, we were kids who didn't listen to anyone, you know. We didn't listen to the magistrate or the police. But when Jerry talked, every you know, when he told us one of these stories, everyone was quiet, like, hanging on to every word. And um, so, yeah, he'd, he'd, he'd grown up in Mozambique during the Civil War. He was one of he was one of 24 kids. His dad had five wives. I <laughs> can't <Yeah>. out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and when he, when he sort of, when he got to about 18, he was... He was going to have. He was. He was going to be drafted to fight in the civil war. And he, the way he'd grown up, he went, "No, I, you know, I don't want to fight in somebody else's war. I don't. I don't believe in that. I'm. I'm not. I'm not going to do that." So he left. Um, he left with two mates. He he walked to South Africa. Um, it took him six months, um, and then ended up like um, he had some family in the living in Soweto in the slums of Johannesburg. Um, and while he while he was there, there was kind of there was kind of a lure of crime and, and and easy money. I think one of his older brothers was was a thug who was sort of trying to trying to get him to come and di- and join this gang of carjackers. Um, but Gary said, "No, no, that's not like you know, that's to, that's not who I am. That's not that's not what I'm about." It. Uh, he you know he wanted to build a happy and and positive life and. I think his way of doing that was through music and, and art. Um, I think, like, yeah, I think I think music's one of those things that are really important to, to, to people, especially in slum areas and that sort of thing. You know, you see the music that, that comes out of those poor areas, and it's like, yeah, when you got nothing else, you know, that, that that's one of the true. That's that's one of the that's one of the only things you got. It's you know, it's yeah, that's one of those things that can bring you joy and uplift you out of the struggle. You know, so yeah, for him it was music and art, and then. Boxing was also kind of a, a a way of earning a small income, um, and 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 discovering that true strength within yourself. You know that that true strength and that and that true power. Um, and so yeah, he 
that you know they they were those they were the things in which he built his life around and he, he brought those things to um yeah he he, he met an australian teacher who was tra like traveling through africa and they, they ended up marrying and, and coming to australia together and, and he brought those things to australia as well i think when he was when he was in his mid-20s his, his his older brother was murdered in prison um and i think it was you know one of the biggest regrets he said he had was that he'd never told his brother that he that he that he loved him he was saying he grew up in a family where love wasn't really openly expressed especially among men and that was one of the biggest regrets that he had and he, he, he i think in that moment he decided that he was going to dedicate his life to helping other young young men avoid making the same mistakes um and yeah and so when he when he when he migrated to australia he, he brought that mission with him and and um uh, was running a fitness program and then eventually found a job in in um, this juvenile detention center, which was where I met him. Um, and he, yeah, he he had, he had a big influence on my life. You know, I, I later joined the gym um, and started boxing with him. And he he, he was a true role model. He was yeah, he he understood. He he, he could relate to these things and. and yeah, he was one of the few positive role models that I was I was permeable to. Mm. Man, that's fascinating that one man can have more of an influence and more of an impact than an entire legislative and policing system, you know? Like, you can go through all these fucking rungs of the judicial system and not one of them gets through to you. And one mm. guy who's the real deal, who has a bit of compassion and has walked a similar path, that one person can change the lives of who knows how many people. And I think there's such a lesson in that, that like really, and I, it's not a lesson either of us need to, to hear because it, it's so obvious. Like when you, when you associate with thugs and criminals and hard men and the fucking wannabe hard men, like you see that the only people they listen to are the people that they respect and the people that they respect are people that have walked a similar path. And uh, really that's, mm -hmm. that's it. So ideally there's those people who have walked that path, but then come out the other side of it. And those are the people that mm -hmm. can have an impact in the uh, incarcerate in the, in the prison systems and the, the judicial process. But of course it's pure luck and, and good fortune that they end up mm. in there. Like um, your friend there, like, you know, he, that was just fortuitous that he ended up in front of you. But yeah, there needs mm. to be a fucking army of people like that. And fortunately with podcasts actually, uh, you know, we're kind of approaching that, that place. You know, you got, uh, I think some of Australia's best podcasts in my opinion are all done by ex-cons. Uh, and it's like, it's so ironic. We started as a, penal colony uh and now like our greatest cultural export it seems is like storytelling by ex-cons uh brent mm -hmm. over at the clink spanion uh just to name a couple there's a heap of them around but i love listening to to these guys and they have so much wisdom and forgiveness and um yeah, like I respect so much what they have to say because they've lived it and there's just so much truth in their existence and they're all survivors of insane levels of trauma and they had to transcend so much pain and suffering in their life and they don't glorify the world that they come from. Whereas like a kid 
uh, on the street may see glory in being a gangster or a thug, but once you listen to the guys who've survived that lifestyle, it makes you want to fucking run as far from it as you can. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and I, th- I think I think one of the things, like, with the system, that, that whole idea of, like, punishing people to try and fix them, it's never going to work, you know? I think, I think, like, Jerry was the solution that that system couldn't offer me because he, like... He offered me kindness and compassion and and love and empathy. And I think I think that's the only way to resolve these things. You know, that's it's the the only way forward. It's yeah. I mean, punishing people to try and fix them, it's it's never going to work. You know, it's it's only going to make people angrier and, and, and more hateful. And yeah, mate, that's so perfectly and simply put. There's such a perfect distillation of everything that's wrong with the the prison system and the way we view it. And and what about um drug decriminalization uh i mean i've been reading that book uh chasing the scream have you you heard of this book or read this book no by no, no. uh johan hari like and he's the best young journalist in the world uh he's got that stolen focus and uh lost connection and they all center around the modern condition and uh essentially mental illness is lost connection uh, stolen focus is all about the way that technology is basically corrupting and corroding our brains and, and chasing the scream is is all about drug uh just drug policy and why it is the way it is and how ineffective it's been and the places where it is effective are places like portugal uh where drugs have been decriminalized and um you know you you can, and places like Liverpool uh, in the 90s and various places have, have trialed this process of decriminalizing drugs. And what they find generally is when people have access to drugs that are clean, that are uh, readily available and prescribed by GPs, you know, literally giving people heroin and uh, cocaine. Uh, I, I don't know about meth. I think, I don't think meth kind of falls under this conversation necessarily i'm not too sure you have to do your own research on that one but generally what happens is people take the drugs they use them to keep themselves afloat and they on their own willpower quite easily manage to wean off them Mm. but Mm. It, it it really and they work they function they work jobs they raise families and they just have this uh habit that slowly decreases over time this is what the data says this isn't controversial this is this is in the science and the studies that have been done and it's it's real world shit that's happened in the past so uh yeah, yeah i recommend anyone who's interested in reading that book but i don't want to lead you with that kind of statement or policy because meth might be a different kettle of fish but yeah what is your take on the way drugs are viewed by society I think, like, uh, people say, like, you know, there's this common idea that, that marijuana is a gateway drug and, and by, you know, taking drugs, it's it's going to lead you to become a criminal. I think I think the gateway is not so much the drug itself, but the fact that it is criminalised and that, that to go and get these things, you have to go and get them from criminal people. And you're going to be, you know, by going to criminal people and getting these things, you're going to be exposed to a different outlook on life. You're going to be exposed to criminal things, you know. Um so yeah, I mean, I think I think also by by treating this as as a as a health problem and a social problem, which 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 it really is, you know, um, it, it allows to have access to people who 
may otherwise be hard to access and and, and to really treat these things, you know. Um, I think a lot of people who use drugs, it's people look at drugs as the problem. Drugs and drugs are never the problem, you know. Drugs are just somebody's way of dealing with an underlying kind of problem that they don't know how to resolve. Um, and so, and it's only when you get the drugs out of the way that you can actually deal with those real underlying problems. And 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 some people, you know, like a lot of people, live normal functional lives who who do never deal with those problems. You know, they may yeah, everybody kind of. You know, yeah, every like everyone finds an outlet for those things in in something, whether that's like whether that's constructive or, or destructive. Like, you know, whether it's like whether that's surfing or, or travel or like gambling or sex or drinking or or, or whatever. You know, it's like yeah, it's there's it, always like I think dealing with the real underlying stuff is is the real problem. You know, and it's that's that's. Yeah, that's that's the hardest part about getting off drugs as well. It's not so much like it's it's getting that that surface problem out of the way and then dealing with those underlying things. And that that takes years, you know. For a lot of people, it takes yeah, it takes it takes an entire lifetime. It's like it's I, I feel like that's something that never stops as well. We're kind of life is just this constant process of improvement and, and, and growth. You know, mm. it's such a good point, man. The way drugs are viewed by society that when they're criminalized, you know, if there is a, a teenager looking to rebel, then pot, smoking pot seems like a really good way to rebel, right? And it, it fits with that identity. And then you go get the pot and you're scoring it off some fucking older cream with gold chains and shit. And, and that becomes a further push in the direction of that identity of mm. rebellion. But it would change very much so if you're getting that pot from a fucking chemist and the dude in there before you is fucking 65 with white hair and he goes and jumps in his mobile home afterwards, you know, like you're like, oh, this isn't rebellion. Fuck, what's this? This sucks. Like, I want to rebel, damn it. <laughs> and like, uh, just a, a further point to add, you know, I think our society, this Western capitalist consumer reality we inhabit is is deeply mentally ill. Because there is so little joy, really, that can be gained from a material reality. I'd say almost zero. Like, really, um, the material reality, all it can offer you is the ability to have your bases covered. So having stable housing, uh, food, and uh, yeah, that's about it. And a car that works. Like, So, you, you know, the material reality can alleviate stress. But it can't create joy or, or purpose, and, and so living in a, a society and a, and a matrix that really is only about the material reality. There's no there's no respect given to spirituality or community or uh, yeah, like everything's all about. You look at every advertisement uh, and every hero of the media. It's all about just living your best, most affluent life in some far flung destination in some fucking designer clothes or some high end European car. Like every cunt who lives like that is no better off than the, the dude living in the slum in, in Soweto in, in many different ways, in, in the ways that matter. Like I just got back from India mm -hmm. and one thing I noticed was, yeah, it, it was almost like the poorer the neighborhood the like happier people were in a, in the sense of like i don't want to glorify poverty but what i'm saying is that when people grow up poor they find wealth in other ways like you said through uh music and art uh in india it was also a lot about just human connection the 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 strength of community the power of good interactions 
constantly to uplift. And this is not the way we live here. And we're fucking miserable because of it. And you look at the way the West uh, postures around the world, constantly in fucking war, constantly stealing more material resources from other places. Uh, you know, we're sick fucks. So uh, <laughs> I'm fucking, yeah, man. I, I just, uh, that's the, what my travels have led me to believe. And, uh, you know, the slums in Soweto, not the best example because, they live in a, a world of violence and, and criminality as a result of the most insane levels of inequality and, and uh, the post-apartheid situation and, and just this heavily racialized economic inequality. But, uh, you know, yeah, other parts of the world, yeah, the saying poor people have more fun does really ring true. Mm, mm, for sure, yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's this that's this idea that 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 like you say that capitalism is selling us as well, you know that that um, yeah, you know these material things equal status and, and and kind of that's what everyone's out out looking for. But it's yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I've like one thing I've learned and and is to build a life based around experience and and, and stories, you know, because I think at the end of the day. That's to me the way I see my life. All it really is is a, is a, is a collection of stories, you know. And, and at the end of the day, no one can take those things away, you know. It's yeah. Mm. So yeah, I, I suppose I've designed a different kind of life, like yeah, traveling around Indonesia on this on this motorbike, a life of a life of complete freedom and experience, because they're the things that I've come to discover are, 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 are truly important, you know. Absolutely, I, I would caution one thing with travel, and it, this is such a recent revelation for me because i like yourself spent a lot of my 20s i lived in asia for years in bali and uh i thought travel was was the great gift and i still i think it can be but also uh you know and this is just more for listeners uh and, and as well as yourself man it's really based off a fucking new yorker article i read the other day called the case against travel and i, I recommend uh any uh travelers uh people who love travel to read it because it, it, it was a fascinating read it, it basically stacked all of these heavyweight philosophers from through the generations on top of each other making the case against travel. And the basic case against travel was that you lose your routine and structures and your diet changes. So you, your gut health changes, you, your gut health is where your serotonin's generated. Like there's just all these disruptions to uh, your life that are brought about by travel. So, and not to mention the expectation that travel will in itself be transcendent. So when you get mm -hmm. to spot X, Y, Z, that you're going to feel different and that's dangerous because a lot of the time you reach that mm -hmm. place and you don't feel any different. Sometimes you feel even worse because your, your sleep routines are off, your food's different. So yeah, it, it's worth walking into the lifestyle of travel with your eyes wide open and, and knowing that you're, you're generally not the best version of yourself when you're traveling just because you don't have the the foundations, the the, the structure, the routine that that really the anatomy craves, whether we like it or not, the, the, the brutal reality of being a human being is that it demands certain things at certain times of the day. And, and the more you are committed to that it, you know what do they say um you talked about freedom and they say structure is freedom and mm. i think that is uh very true when it when it comes to human beings that said i'm just telling you that so 
you know, like, so, you know, like that there is also this other argument out there and mm. um, just so, you know, so you can be aware and take care of yourself as you undertake this epic journey, man. I'd fucking love to call you at different points during the journey, bro. Yeah. We'll link up for yeah, a few yeah, more interviews sure. along the way. I'd that'd love to see how it goes. Yeah, <laughs> Don't let me sick. stop you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be epic, bro, for sure, yeah. But, man, I'll, uh, I'll let you go. I mean, I really appreciate the time that you've uh, given us. I, I know that you've written a lot of articles um, and so if you'd like to, you know, recommend to anyone um, bits that you're proud of uh, from your like, catalog of articles, stuff for people to read, that I'd love that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm on on, um, on social media as Stories from the Scenic Route. Um, it's all on my website as well, www.storiesfromthescenicroute.com. Um, and yeah, I'll be like, yeah, I'll, I'll be documenting the journey across Indo as well. Um, yeah. Scenic Root TV on YouTube. So Epic. yeah, stay, stay tuned. Mantle man. And, uh, yeah. Anything else you, you want to leave us with anything we haven't covered that you think is important? Um, just to be kind, you know, it, it one yeah. It one that you're like, yeah, yeah. One, you know, I think, I think, I think like, one of the most important things that like I've learned is is to like to be kind to other people, but also be kind to yourself as well, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Just like if, if I could leave with just two words, it'd just be that, you know, just be kind. Epic, mate. Really appreciate your story. And your journey, Tom. I think it's a, a shining light for a lot of people and mate. Uh, yeah. I think these are the stories that we need to hear more of and thank God for podcasts uh, for enabling us to, to get them out there in, in this raw and unfiltered format. Sick, man. Right on. Thanks, Smithy. Thanks. Thanks for having us on the show, bro. Legend. Good on you, brother. Take care, man. Cheers, man.